Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. Have you ever thought about living in a van? Maybe not, huh? I have. I've talked about it on the podcast before. It's a new way to still be in society, but not be of society. Van life brings a certain freedom to your life. Welcome to episode number 37. Today I have Bob Wells on the Peace Pod, and he is one of the leaders of the van life movement. He has an exceptional following on YouTube. When I found his page, I I binge-watched and binge-watched and watched video after video and learned so much about this new phenomenon called van life. Bob is a true expert of van life. He's been living in a van for about 25 years. And now he's a teacher of it. He has his website, his YouTube channel. He even has a once a year conference that he does called the RTR, where people from all over the country drive in with their vans and RVs and everyone gets together and he provides education and camaraderie. And he also has a nonprofit organization where he helps people get off the ground in their van life. Sometimes they even give away vans. This gentleman is doing great things in the van life movement, helping people, and it's a pleasure to talk with him on the Peace Pod. Of course, we're going to talk about the basics of van life, what it's like, how do you get started, where do you park, what's the lifestyle, how do you make money. But you know, Bob is a very introspective guy, and... A lot of the topics that are discussed on this podcast all the time are going to be discussed with Bob. We got to talk about death. We got to talk about spirituality. And how about the state of the world and where it's going? If you've already met Bob or follow him on YouTube, then you're about to get to know him a lot better over the next hour and 20 minutes. So strap on your seatbelt and let's take a ride. All right, Bob, welcome to the Peace Pod. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So for someone that's been living in a van for over 20 years, how much freedom would you say it provides someone? How much freedom has it provided you? Um, I would say um, it's provided me with a lot of freedom. you know, when we think about what freedom is, most people don't give it much thought. But to me, the, the ultimate uh, uh, act of freedom is the, is the ability to choose what I am going to do at this moment. And then a free person has the maximum ability to choose at this moment, I will do this because this is what I want to do. Mm. And not many of us have, have much freedom. No. Uh, the average, you know, average working person. I worked all my life. I went to work, uh, you know, forty hours a week, just like everyone else, and 
I was fortunate. I was uh, at a time when I could get a pension, and now I've got my pension. I'm in my golden years. I don't. Um, nearly all of my moments of my day, I can think to myself, I can do what I want to do right now. Mm. So, uh, and of course, I look back on my past life, uh, my regular working life, and I had very, very few moments like that. They were right. rare. Yeah, it seems like a tremendous amount of freedom. But you know what? You It seems like you have sacrificed a lot of your freedom because now you're a teacher of this and you have responsibility uh, with your YouTube channel and your website and your nonprofit organization, right? So you've kind of given away a little bit of your freedom, haven't you? And so I've lost an enormous amount of freedom. Most of my day's decisions today are made by uh, my desire to build what I'm building. So I'm here at 11 o'clock with you, not because this is my favorite place, although I'm happy to be here, <laughs> but because I have accepted a responsibility. Right. And so and am I free when I made that choice? Yes, I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do. Right, right. Yeah, you even have an assistant. I mean, how many people in a van have an assistant? <laughs> yeah, I would think that's kind of unusual. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you, you have taken on a responsibility and you have... You're an entrepreneur in your own right because the YouTube page is, you know, it's it's blown up as we say in the streets. It's it's doing yep. well, and so and you're educating people. I was fascinated with van life. Well, I mean, when I ran into your page originally, I been I binge watched like most people do, and I identified with it immediately because I am familiar with ashrams and monasteries, and when somebody goes and lives a spiritual life at an ashram or a monastery it's about simplicity and when i saw van life i said that's really zen that's really simple now there might be a few little headaches right you got to get fuel you got to make sure the the van is well taken care of but there's something zen about it there's something very present moment about it wouldn't you say I would say very much so. It, exactly what I how I see it, and probably the one of the questions I get most, there, I get many of the same questions. How do you go to the bathroom? You know, the the nuts and bolts of how you do this. But when they get beyond the nuts and the bolts of how you would live in a van, one of the big things and big fears is, what will I do with myself all day? Will I be bored out of my mind? And that is the. Um, the civilized mindset of I have to be productive at all times. Mm. I can't, I must be distracted and entertained at all times. I can't have a moment where I just sit down and, and listen to my own head and, and just do nothing. That is a terrifying thought for the majority of Americans. Mm -hmm. Well, you are confronted with that in, in the life that I promote that if you come out here and you wake up one morning and you don't have a whole, you have nothing to do. You do that day exactly what you want to do. Everything mm -hmm. takes a little longer. So you'll be busy, but you'll just go for a walk. Most of us end up going for walks. I knew a guy who would just, uh, he'd been a truck driver all his life. Go, go, go. Just like all of us. He'd run his own trucking into business. And he came out here and he just slowly learned to wake up, go outside, make a cup of coffee and just sit in his chair for hours and watch nature move. And Beautiful. he would never say it, but that was one of the most zen things I've ever seen. 
He could just sit there and be. It's the greatest fear that most of us had that what will I do with my time? What will I do with my brain? Mm -hmm. Um, And yet it turns into mostly the greatest joy we have. That's right. That's right. People are afraid to be alone, but the English language is, it's one of the, the last languages that was created. And they put a lot of thought into it. Alone is all one. <laughs> so, you know, there's something to be said about being alone. Yes. And uh, we just have to, we, we, in our society, our, our private thoughts are so, for the most part, so unhealthy and unhappy that we have to be distracted away from them all the time. Right. So it's a major mindset change, paradigm shift, if you can just learn to be alone with your own thoughts. It's terrifying. It's one of the things I warn people about. When you come out here, you're going to face certain things. And one of the big ones is this mindset shift. Uh, it will be a traumatic thing and a very difficult thing for many people. The old idea that you hear all the time that men retire and they're dead within years, you know, it's that. They can't ever let go of the busyness of their mind, and they can't fill it, and it's so terrifying, I think it kills them. Hmm. I really do. Yeah, so what you're saying is van life is not for everyone. I believe it is for every human being, but a few of us are so traumatized by our civilized way of life, they cannot adapt back to a proper and correct and normal human way of living. Right. So obviously there's people, my audience is listening and they're like probably banging on their table. Get to the nuts and bolts. How do you go to the bathroom? How do you live? Okay. So let, let's, let's go, let's use your story as example. Let's go back. Your first van was a box truck, correct? Correct. Yes. So just to give the audience a visual box truck, like a moving truck, a U-Haul, something to that effect. Uh, it had a, a van nose, just like any van nose, and you see these running around the streets all the time. Right. And then it had a box on the back, and mine was literally eight foot by twelve foot by about seven foot tall on the mm. inside. So imagine a room. I mean, that's a small room in a house. That might be a bathroom in someone's house right. uh, with a with a low ceiling. So twelve by eight uh, by seven foot tall, and that was my home. And this is the nineties, right? Nineteen ninety five. I moved into that van. Okay, what, what made you wake up one day and say, I'm going to move into that? And what gave you the idea to do that? Well, uh, I had always been a backpacker. And so uh, traveling and camping uh, on, with nothing had always been a normal uh, thought to me. And when I was, and I was just a young man, I, one summer I delivered pianos. And that was the first, and we had a box truck exactly like the one I ended up in. And so I remember... Uh, being with the guys and us having discussions about converting it to a camper. I lived in Alaska all my life and camping is the normal thing. Going fishing. Everyone I knew went fishing. Right. And so you'd rush down to the river on your days off and uh, set up camp. And I said, wouldn't it be great just to have, if you converted this fan into a camper, just put in a cot and a little table to cook on and uh, in your cooler and it'd be a great camper. And we all just thought that was a wonderful idea. So, I went through a divorce in 1995. That's how I know the year. And uh, at the, when the divorce was over, I could no longer afford to uh, pay for two households. And essentially, that's what you're doing. You're taking going from two households, from one household to two. And I could no longer do that. 
And so I needed a way to live uh, very cheaply, and the van provided that. Uh, I uh, in this story, I drove to work every day, and I drove past this uh, lot. I, I don't remember what it was. And it was a business, and they used it as a delivery van. They had a for sale sign on it. Mm. And I drove by it, and I started driving, driving to and from work by it. And I thought, I could live in that. Mm. Why couldn't I live in that? And I finally thought, I'll stop. I stopped one day on the way to work. Uh, it was cheap. He said it was grand great. They'd taken great mechanical condition, care of it. But it was kind of old and beat up and rusty. And the boss was ashamed of it and said, get rid of it. And I got it for 1500 bucks. And that night, I threw down a sleeping pad and a sleeping bag, and I was home. Did you end up uh, insulating it? Oh, yeah. In, I live in Alaska, and 30 below was routine in the winter. Right. And so, yeah, insulation was critical. I, um, over a period of time, uh, like, you know, like everyone, what, how did you do this? How do you do that? You just figure it out over a period of time. And having been a backpacker, um, compared to living off a backpack, it was... It was an enormous amount of room. Yeah. And, and that's one way I would convey to your audience. It's a rolling steel tent. That's right. If you look at it that way, or another way to look at it is, uh, what, 150 years ago, our ancestors, who we admire tremendously, crossed the plains in wagons, covered wagons. Think of it as a covered wagon. Think okay. of me and yourself as a person who's now going to live for the next six months or eight months or however long it took i don't even know long time uh to cross the prairie in the in a prairie schooner right so you're living in a box truck i've thought about a box truck myself and uh eventually you end up in just a, a regular white chevy van right uh, the next it's been numerous uh iterations of, of vehicles my next one because i lived in alaska was a four-wheel drive pickup with mm. a very tall shell wow uh, that was my next home i lived in that for about three years wow and then eventually into the chevy van right in uh the classic white van that people see all over society right yes i lived in, in one of those just a regular one for a couple of years uh two or three years and then um it was pretty well worn out. I gave it away to someone else and bought a pretty new one. I, what I'm in now is a 2015. It's just a cargo, white cargo van. And I put a high top. Uh, you've seen vans with high tops. If they're carrying passengers uh, for business, they usually have high tops. And there are companies that will install high tops, and I pay the company to put on a high top. Somebody must be wondering right now, why a van? Why take a van and convert it instead of just going and buying an RV? Okay, that's a great question. In all of life, your whole life re re comes down to a balancing act between comfort and mobility. So you own, most of your audience lives in apartments or homes they own. Um, and so they have an enormous amount of comfort, but they have zero mobility. You're not moving that home. Uh, if you decide you're going to move, that becomes an enormous chore. Yeah, you can get in your car and move around, but you're coming home to that home. And even if you're in a unique position where you can travel a lot, well, that's unique. That's not the norm. Um, you're, you've lost your potential, and the house steals from you your potential of, of mobility because you've got to pay for it. That's right. You've got to go to a job. You've got to pay for it. And a few don't have to, but they're the rare ones. 
So you give up mobility for comfort. Well, if you decide I'm going to live on wheels, every choice offers that exact choice. Uh, if I want to be in an RV, I get a lot of comfort, but I give up a lot of mobility. How, how, how do I lose mobility? Well, maybe I'll get five miles a gallon. I got to be able to pay for the gas to drive a thousand miles. That's a lot of money. I, and if I don't have that money, then I've lost that ability just to drive across the country because I want to. You can't take them much into the back country. They're too big. Uh, right. And they're, you just can't take them. I'm, I routinely go places where you wouldn't even think about going in an RV. Right. They're hard to drive around the city. They're hard to park in the city. I mean, if you've got a 30-foot RV, you get an enormous amount of comfort. But go park that downtown New York mm -mm. and tell me how that went for you. No stuff. Yeah. You've lost the mobility that I have in a regular old van. They're driving around every city. They're driving around back countries, country roads. Um, and so there's always, and the gas mileage is really a big part of it. Uh, and so for some people, a minivan is a better choice. You get most of the comfort, not all, but you can get into the mid twenties or higher in, in, uh, in miles per gallon. So that's a good choice too. Hmm. Everyone has to make their choice. I think the van is the very best choice of comfort and mobility. It's adequate amount of comfort, not a lot, but adequate mm -hmm. and adequate amount of mobility, not like a Jeep, uh, but pretty darn good. Yeah. And so your, your lifestyle, if I'm not mistaken, you go to, you're on the West coast, right? Correct. So you, you go to, desert area for winter right correct and then you go to mountain area for summer right exactly okay please please explain that to the audience uh it's commonly called being a snowbird uh and we do exactly what uh wild creatures have done for um, since there have been wild creatures we follow the weather and so when if the weather is good in one place we migrate to there and when the weather turns bad there, and so right now I'm in the desert, it's about uh, 75 degrees. Um, where, I, where I am gets about 300 days of sunshine a year. Mm. I like that. I like seeing the sun. And I like being at about 75 degrees. But yeah. I bet a lot of your audience is in a very cold place and would think, oh, I can live with 75 and sun. <laughs> so we go to where the best weather is and then uh, – in the winter and that's for us that's the desert southwest for your east coast audience maybe it would be florida uh south florida is very warm and for your midwest audience it could be either you can go the distances but it might be texas south texas on the gulf coast is a, a destination for a lot of us it's pretty warm there too mm. so we just travel with the weather uh it turns out uh the laws of physics dictate that for every thousand feet in elevation you gain uh, you're going to drop about three and a half degrees of temperature. So if you go up to 10,000 feet, you've dropped 35 degrees. Uh, so if it's uh, 135 in Phoenix, which it doesn't get, but let's just say it is, um, it will be 100 at 10,000 feet. And so you get much cooler. Or more realistically, if it's 110 in Phoenix, it's going to be 85 at 10,000 feet. Mm -hmm. So we look for elevation more than we look for north. And a lot of people do city parking. They do stealth mode. They, they park in the back of a hotel or they park on a city street. It sounds like that's what you did in the beginning. 
and you've evolved to where you are now. Correct. So um, I parked on the streets of Anchorage, literally, and went to a gym every morning. And that's how I took a shower and got healthier. And uh, I learned to cook inside the van just with a cook stove like I would if I were backpacking. And um, that we call that stealth because the goal is to not deceive, although in a sense, I guess it is, but just not to draw attention. If you don't bother people, most people won't bother you. No. So you you are you keep your van clean. You don't ever leave trash. You don't make a mess. You you don't bother anyone. They won't bother you. That's the idea. Where where are some places someone could stealth park if they were in a van in a city type environment? Uh, I was actually worked in uh, the grocery business all my life. I was a, a union clerk. I I stocked grocery shelves, um, and so I personally believe that most twenty four hour grocery stores are your first choice. First, there are employees in there, so there's a bunch of people in the parking lot. There are people coming and going. In fact, cops are in and out of 24-hour grocery stores all the time. They want to get a coffee or a donut and uh, a bite to eat. So uh, there's a lot of traffic. Uh, You can blend in. People won't know if you're an employee or not. I think a 24-hour grocery store is your best choice. Mm. Um, And then for some people, they like uh, areas with apartment complexes because there's all these sprawling uh, parking. You know, um, you always usually have an assigned parking, but not enough. So you, there's people parked everywhere and you never know who's where and you just blend in. You get a little further away so you're not stealing their parking spots, um, but you blend in and no one knows who you are or what you're doing there. Those are two how, good ones. How about a commuter lot? Uh, it would That would depend on the city right, and it right. would depend on the lot. Sometimes they're locked, sometimes they're patrolled, sometimes uh, they'll put up signs saying no overnight parking. It can work. Uh, it just depends on, on the individual city. Right, right. Okay. How about hotels? A surprising number of hotels have security watching the parking lot. What can work and what I have done numerous times is if you can find a motel that is uh, joined uh, to like a Denny's, a 24-hour Denny's uh, uh, restaurant chain. And so you could be in between them. And no one would know if you were in working at the Denny's, in eating breakfast at the Denny's, or in the motel. Mm. Uh, so, in other words, you're just thinking, how can I not draw any attention, the least amount of attention, to myself? Right. And that's one a good one because you could be in either place. And you can go in and get Denny's and get Wi-Fi and, and buy a cup of coffee and a piece of pot. That's nice, too. And use their bathroom. You have a chart on your website, rvliving.com, that someone could live in their van for 500 a month or a thousand a month. And then you have it, you have it all broken down. And I do say on there, it is a very frugal life at 500 a month. Right. You are, you are in survival mode in this country. The problem in this country is we have become a, a, a very low wage, very high cost of housing nation. And many people are being trapped in that. So they're, they may be making a pretty good wage, but they're uh, comparatively what it used to be. And but their cost of housing has skyrocketed so much, and cost of house of healthcare and and other things are still up, um, and they can't afford they can't afford to live. What I'm finding a lot in my community is particularly women uh, who are on retirement age on Social Security, um, and when they were young girls. 
if you're 60 or 70 now, when you were a young girl, you were told to stay home, have kids, get married, uh, and, and, and take care of the kids. And so they did. And because at that time, so we're talking 50 years ago, uh, there were no jobs for women. It was discouraged. Um, the jobs that were there were not very good jobs. They didn't pay much. They still don't. They always, even today, they have a, a, this huge wage disparity. And so what happens is husband dies along the road. It's 50 years later. It's time to retire. They had been promised if they did their part, they would be taken care of. Right. Now it's time to be taken care of. And so husband has died or, or replaced them with a better model. And they go to draw their social security. They don't have much because they didn't work that much. And when they worked, it was low wage jobs. So they end up on between 500 and $1,000 a month on social security. And you cannot live in this country on 500 or $1,000 and be in a house. Right. Um, if you can, you're eating dog food. I mean, literally, you're eating dog food. And every month, you're deciding, will I eat or will I buy, pay for electricity for that next month? And, and the idea, well, now I'm, I need to go to a doctor and get these prescriptions filled. That idea is out. Because if you're not Medicare yet, uh, or, or if you can't afford the extra that, that all the other plans cost, you're not going to go get the medicine. You're doing without because you have to have a place to live. The one thing you do not want to be in this country is living in a cardboard box under a bridge. Right. And that's a lot of what a lot of seniors are facing. Right. Live under in a cardboard box under a bridge or eat or get the medicine that will keep me alive. It's a sad and pathetic state, but it is very, very real. Right. The average Social Security is $1,400. Uh, and so that means a huge chunk of them are under a thousand, um, a month and you can't live on a thousand dollars. Uh, and in fact, I just saw a survey that said 25% of Americans do not have a penny saved towards retirement today, right now. And over 50% couldn't put a thousand dollars together for an emergency. Hmm. So, you know, this is going to continue. The next generation isn't is going to come to retirement age with no money in the bank, social security only, and that's not a livable wage. Mm. It's not you can't live on it. So, all that to say, uh, there are a lot of people who are making between five hundred thousand a month, and while you cannot possibly thrive, maybe you could survive living in a house, but that's all. You can't thrive on that wage. You can thrive if you can own a good minivan. And you can buy a good minivan for $3,000 and, and turn it into a nice little home for perhaps just a couple hundred. Uh, you can thrive and not just survive. At the end of the month, you will have a bit of money left. You will have traveled in that month. When you buy gas, you'll, you have to move uh, uh, the way we do this on, on public land every two weeks. So every two weeks, you're going to move and you're going to see the country and you're going to not just survive, you're going to thrive. Eliminate the cost of housing, you can live surprisingly cheap still in this country. Sure. You mentioned the minivan. That's it's smaller than what you're in, but it's it's an option for people who don't have it enough money. The van life has become so popular that finding a, a good van is very difficult and expensive. And so minivans are plentiful. Mm. And so I do recommend minivans. Uh, you do give up some comfort, you gain some mobility and great gas mileage. Great gas mileage. I mean, you're getting into the mid-20s is pretty easy on a minivan. Wow. I know so many people who are house poor. 
because the you know we've been socially engineered to buy a house buy a house buy a house you're in an apartment you know you don't own it right it's like uh it's a programming to buy a house buy a house and then somebody may buy a house and it might cost them 1500 and they only make 1800 and then they only got a few hundred left over for food and whatever so there's a lot of house poor people out there bob and van life is is a way to break that pattern right i think what happened uh i'm sure you're familiar with the the hashtag van life movement which is mm -hmm. very very strong among the young because uh and i think it's primarily because of 2008 when when it became just starkly evident that the the economy of our country has drastically changed the idea you know here they saw all these people who had worked all their life for a pension and it was just stolen from them right. the court the company went to court and their pensions just disappeared you know the company they had worked for all their lives 20 30 years all of a sudden they had no pension they had no job they had nothing zero Hmm. Then they lost their house and they literally had zero. They didn't even, they were in a cardboard box. And so I think that was, and the one thing that society has always said is buy a house, upgrade, keep buying bigger, better houses. When you get older, you'll have a pension. We'll take care of you. That's hmm. our promise. And you'll have social security and you'll sell the house and you'll buy a downsize, buy a smaller one, pay cash. You won't have to pay a house payment. You're going to have a great old age golden years mm -hmm. um well it became very very evident in 2008 that that was a hollow promise it had been true for the boomer generation it really was it was true for my generation that came true for me i don't believe it's going to come true for any more generations ever again i don't know what the future is for our economy but it's not that it's not the golden years mm -hmm. staying at one company for life keep upgrading houses everything will be golden that's no longer true. And I think right. anybody with common sense can see that. Right. How about heat? How, how, how would someone in van life heat themselves? There's a few options, right? There are some people that can't be a snowbird. I kept working uh, for six years uh, in, after I started living in a van. So I couldn't be a snowbird. I had to stay there. My kids were there. Uh, and I wasn't leaving where my kids were. So I was locked into Anchorage, Alaska. So heat was a big, big issue. Mm. But uh, now, now that I'm retired and older, uh, and I, I'm a snowbird, so I go to the desert where it's mostly warm. There are cold nights. The desert can have surprisingly cold nights. Um, and there are transition seasons. So the desert, uh, there's an example, is in May. The desert might be into the mid-90s and pretty hot, pretty uncomfortable. Hmm. And I'll move to the mountains and it'll snow. So right. there's a transition period where you're going to run into some unpleasant weather, either too hot or too cold. Uh, and so uh, you do need to be able to cope with heat and cold. With uh, heat is easy. You can buy a, uh, a little portable propane heater that's designed to be used indoor. They're safe indoor. Uh, the one most of us use there are two brands, Mr. Heater, Buddy Heaters, mm -hmm. and that's a very common one. A lot of us use those. Uh, puts out a lot of heat. Will heat a van just instantly. Really, really warm. And the other one is uh, made by a company called Olympian. They're true catalytic heaters, and uh, I'm a big fan of those. But they will both work. I'm seeing a lot of Chinese diesel heaters now too, and they're superb. They're about a thousand bucks. 
Uh, and so that's so much that most of us can't really afford them. They're vented, so they're going to be inherently a little safer. There's re less risk, and uh, they're thermostat. They just, you know, come on, go off. And so, yeah, those are real popular. In fact, I know some people, and either one, either gas or diesel, you can tap right into your gas tank. So, Bob, you're, you're in your 60s, right? 64, almost 65. Okay. So your, your children must be in their 30s? Yes. Mm -hmm. how, do they, how do they feel that dad's, dad's been in a van for the last 20-something years? Well, you know, they kind of grew up with it. My son, uh, I think he's uh, amused by my notoriety. <laughs> uh, I don't know how else to say that. I hopefully, <laughs> hopefully he's just amused by it. Um, I send, you know, every time I'm in a, uh, any kind of media article, I send it to him and show off. Of course, you know, I, my ego's as big as anybody's. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I send it to him and he's amused by it. And, uh, but, uh, when we were divorced when he was, uh, six. And so for the next six years, when he came to visit me, he came to visit me in a van. Right. And so he, he, uh, he was in the van, in and out of the van, um, with me and he i made sure he was comfortable i got him uh this was back in the tube tv days i had a 32 inch tube tv in my box fan <laughs> and i hooked up a uh we had the very first generation of playstation and nintendos and so he would come home from school and and play nintendo just like all of his friends and, and yeah. playstation so yeah he grew up with it and it kind of um has given him, I don't know if you're familiar with something called the FIRE movement. That yeah. stands for Financial Independence Retire Early, Mr. Yes. Money Mustache. Yeah. Uh, and I, and actually, in a way, that's exactly what I'm saying. Live really frugally, gain your independence. Financially independent. And in a really uh, primitive sense, that's exactly what I'm teaching. Just exactly what Mr. Money Mustache teaches. Right. Get a job, save all you can, uh, have a savings, and then live on the savings and be financially independent. Um, and some van lifers will get a job somewhere, somewhere they're not attached to it, and they'll work for two, three months, right? Save exactly. the money, and then they don't have to work for the next however many months. Exactly. It depends on what your skill set is. If you have the skill set, uh, well... The idea behind FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early, is that if you have the skill set and you can make, bring in the money and save enough, you work until uh, you're 30 or 40, and then you never work again. That's retire early. Mm. And it's completely realistic. I know guys, I know a guy who was um, worked for one of the big tech companies in San Francisco, wrote writing code, uh, has probably half a million dollars in the bank, now lives in a Subaru Forester. And we'll never have to work again. If mm. he wants to, he can. That's financial independence. It's his choice. Uh, maybe he wants to work. Maybe he's got a brilliant idea and he just enjoys creating a business. And so he'll create a business. Mm. And that, he'll contribute in that way. It's his choice. But he lives in a van. And if he wants to go rock climbing up in uh, Montana, he goes. And if he wants to go to Baja and surf, he goes there. Um, he lives so cheaply, he can live on his savings and, and never have to think about money again. Right. And and thrive and flourish in the way he wants to. Right. Yeah. There's so many. There's so many options. And again, I sort of automatically correlate it to ashrams and monasteries. It's just it's slightly different 
but there's a lot of similarities there because if you go to an ashram or a monastery, you, you don't need any money. You, you, right. They give you room and board to follow their lifestyle and maybe you work in the kitchen or you do housekeeping. This is very similar because you can go work at a campground for a few months, right? Right. Make some break some money, live in your van. Um, I, I have a, I met, I've met a lot of people at, at ashrams and the stories are unbelievable. One guy told me about this place that he worked at in Oregon. It was a retreat center. He worked there for an entire year and they paid him plus room and board. So my thought was, oh my gosh, well, if you took the Bob Wells van life philosophy and you combine that with that. There's, there's something there. Uh, if they paid him a wage in room and board and he did it for a year, he could probably take two or three years and not work living in a van. Yeah. And then his life would be 100% his. Right. Every day, every choice would be the one he wanted, whatever yeah. it was. Right. And, and I, I've also met people at ashrams that bounce from ashram to ashram to ashram. Some of them, they bring a tent. And they sleep out in the tent in the summer months. And that's how they live their life. And if they had a van, if they were doing van life, they could take that to a whole other level. It's just a rolling steel tent. <laughs> that really is the way to look at van living. It's right? a rolling steel tent. That's right. Uh, you know, you're, you're young. You, may, you probably don't remember when it was out. The, the TV series Kung Fu. I, I know of be, it. You know of it. You're too young to have seen it. Um, well, it was a big hit, and it was the idea. I think he was half American, half Chinese, and he had grown up uh, with the Kung Fu uh, philosophy and a monk. He was a monk in, in a temple, and it shows his growing up. And remember this grasshopper, you know, you always had those scenes. And then when he got old, he came back to America, and he walked around uh, on nothing and did good. And there was a huge popular hit, and that concept of just being absolutely free and mm. going around and doing good, mm. meeting people and making connections. Mm. And, and everywhere I went, I did good. People were glad I had come. That, that lives large in the human heart. Mm. Uh, it's, it's the normal, natural way to be a human being. Now, let me give you some evidence. That's something, that's a bold statement to say. Mm. For uh, the first two million years of Homo sapiens and pre-Homo sapiens, that's the way every single one of us lived. We lived in a small community, and the community lived and died by the contribution of each one. We were in complete cooperation. Um, if you said, where is the best way to store excess food? The answer was always in my neighbor's stomach. Right. Because the next day when I needed him, he was healthy and strong and was there for me. And that is. Uh, that, so this being deeply connected to each other, traveling around, taking care of each other, living in cooperation. The evolutionary biologists call it the uh, environment of evolutionary adaptedness. This is the environment and the way of life our species evolved to live. And the more we live away from that, the unhealthier we are mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And we, we live in a society that's tremendously unhealthy. 
yeah. mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, mm. because we have drifted so far from the two million years of evolution. Um, and I believe intelligent design that created us to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether you do or not, whether you believe in science or, or evolutionary or intelligent design, doesn't matter, both, they both agree. That's the way humans should behave. That oh. connected, deeply connected, generous, cooperative spirit. Absolutely. I've heard you say on a video once that you made death your best friend. Yes. Death is a very, very big topic on this podcast. I talk about it all the time. I truly, truly feel that it's the most important event of our life. And when you understand death and you can get close to it, it helps you, it helps you live. Yes. How have you made death your best friend? I ponder it. I literally ponder it. I meditate on it. When we talked, we talked about freedom, and first and foremost, I think freedom is that ability to choose today. But it goes beyond my actual, um, you know, natural body's ability to choose. We all ask, have points in our lives. We think to ourselves, "Why am I doing this? I don't even want to do this. Why do right. I do the things I don't want to do? Right. And why don't I do the things I do want to do?" So freedom is as much an internal, spiritual, emotional, intellectual exercise as it is an outside exercise and so i give a lot of thought i do i have pretty much devoted my life to understanding what does it mean to be free spiritually emotionally and intellectually Mm. and and i believe first and foremost is embracing death and befriending death um and so i i'm not all that i'm not a very smart guy so I try to stand on, on the shoulders of really, really smart guys. Hmm. And so I think particularly back to the Stoics and, and Buddhists, the Buddha himself. Yes. And one of the Buddhists, uh, one of the things that Buddha did, now I'm not a Buddhist, but one of the things the Buddha did was he, they actually would go to graveyards and dig up graves and sit around and ponder that hmm. dead body. Yes. And you can't see it, but I've got a skull not very far from me. And uh, the Stoics are another group that I, I tremendously admire. I, and I, I see so much commonality between the Stoics and, and the Buddha. Yeah. Uh, and the, the Stoics encouraged people who followed that philosophy to do negative meditations, ponder the bad things in your life. In fact, there's a famous uh, quote in, I think it's Epictetus, who was a big one, or, or Marcus Aurelius, I'm not sure, uh, where he talks about pondering your child's death. Mm. When, you, when you get up in the morning and you, you hug and hold your child, ponder their death, mm-hmm. and then hold that close and think to yourself, this child is going to die, I'm going to lose them, or I'm going to die. I'd better take this moment and and be here with this child. Yeah, man. You know, everything is temporary. <laughs> That's one of the major teachings in Buddhism, Taoism, pretty much all the Eastern cultures. This is temporary. Everything is temporary. Your money, your life, your cars, even your respectability. It's all 
temporary and it could all be gone the snap of the fingers i'm not a fan of our current positivity movement i i think that uh <laughs> i think it's a denial of life yes um, and they're all going to tell me how crazy i am you want to you want me to meditate on death and yes i do yes I think yes if you make death your best friend uh you, you learn will how to live you learn how you and you won't until um I am an enormous fan of uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I think she might be one of the mm. wisest humans who ever lived because sure. she spent her whole life holding the hand of the dying. And there is wisdom in that woman. Yes, and Ram Das, who just passed away a few weeks ago, was also a part of that movement. I was inspired by that movement as well. I immediately signed up to visit hospice people. So. Just get as close to it as you can. Yes. It's, it's going to happen to you. It just happened to Kobe Bryant. Right. In a helicopter crash with his 13-year-old daughter. It's like it can happen. If, if a mega athlete, if it can happen to a mega athlete, it can happen to any of us at any time. Right. And I love how you brought up the, the Buddhist philosophies, the Taoist philosophies as well similar the eastern philosophy in general yes some people look at it as negative they look at it as depressing mm -hmm. <laughs> but they're just looking at it the wrong way you know yes they're, they're not seeing the the enormous positive benefit of of knowing i don't have tomorrow that's right uh, i don't have tomorrow that's just tomorrow is the illusion right uh, this is the only reality that's right so how, how did you, because I've heard you also mention that you got into Taoism and Zen. Uh, my spiritual background is traditional Christian. I, mm -hmm. You know, my parents were, my mom was a Baptist. I went to Baptist church. And so um, later on, in, when I was a teenager, I got saved and did the traditional Christian thing a lot, a very long time with uh, all of my heart. I, I'd like to think I did it with all my heart. It didn't work out so well for me. Uh, and so when I got older, especially when I went through my divorce, I was a real hitting bottom for me. And the church I was going to was actually into the 12 steps. And I was at a real bottom, really bad spot in my life. And my pastor, who was a very great, wise man, said, why don't you go talk to um, to so-and-so, who, who was a, an, a real, was an addict, was a drunk, mm. and a real low-bottom drunk, in and out of mental institutions and jails. Mm. I want you to talk to him about the 12 steps and AA. So I went and talked to him and it all made sense to me. And, um, and I, I'd never been drunk once in my life. I've never used an illegal drug. I, I, those things don't apply to me, mm. but I'm a very addictive person. And so the question of how can I be free of the, of the demands of my heart, uh, how can I actually be find true spiritual freedom mm. was an incredibly important question to me. So I went to, started going to AA meetings with him. Again, now I've never been drunk in my life. I sat down in my first AA meeting and I knew I was home. These were my people. This was the only place on this planet I, and for the very first time in my life, I belonged. Mm. So I kept going to AA meetings because I belonged. I wasn't a drunk. I couldn't be a member. Um, the, only, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. And I didn't have it. And their uh, philosophy is the higher power, right? It is. It's the 12 steps. Uh, uh, one day at a time. Right. You know, that is, that is a hardcore. The only way you can stop drinking is one day at a time. And really the only way you can stop drinking or whatever your addiction is, 
Maybe it's overworking. Maybe it's whatever it is. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe it's eating. For lots of us, it's eating. For huge majority of us, it's shopping. Uh, the only way you can stop doing those things, eating and shopping, is uh, through finding a higher power. And so there was a method. The 12 steps are simply a, an organized plan, a, a spiritual kit that you pick up and you follow the plan. And miracles happen. And one day you realize, I've stopped shopping. I've stopped drinking. I've stopped uh, drugging. I've stopped uh, eating compel compulsively. Uh, and so um, for the next two years, I went to probably two or three meetings every single day. I worked the steps. Whatever my sponsor said, I did. And my life changed. Mm. And there, there's an incredible uh, correlation between the principles of Zen and Taoism, uh, the Stoics, and, and the 12 steps. So that's okay. my background. Okay. You have to have a higher power to adequately work the steps. The miracle occurs only when there's a higher power. But uh, it's for each person to determine for themselves who their higher power was. Well, mm. I'd been a Christian all my life, and my higher power was Jesus. And that had uh, not worked for me in, uh, in any way, shape, or form. I had to find a higher power. And so I began a study of all the world's religions. I said, okay, I'm just going to look around. In AA, they say, um, the only thing you have to know about a God is there is a God and you're not it. <laughs> and uh, those are the two hardest things you can ever really believe. I'm not really God and I'm not really fit to direct my life. And that's the fundamental principle of, of AA. You need a manager. You just, your life has become completely unmanageable and you need a good manager. You got to fire the one you've got, which is you, and get a good one. And so you start looking for one. And I was on a search for one. And from that day to this, um, finding the right manager and making the right manager in charge of my life is everything I do. And making sure that today, at this moment, that manager is in charge and not me. Religious ideas that I spoke to me were primarily Zen. Taoism, as you mentioned, and uh, Native American, and I see the tremendous similarity. Mm. And then philosophically, uh, Stoicism. Yeah. Okay. No, that's. I see them all really blending together, and I see death in in the Native American spirituality as as varied as it is. Uh, you know, a, a saying you will hear all the time among uh, Native Americans is uh, "Today is a good day to die." You live mm. every day ready to die. And so that's that concept of embracing death that is a commonality. Right, right. And see, now, like you, you just said it a few minutes ago, people are overly positive now. They're into this law of attraction stuff. The idea behind the law of attraction, this is the fundamental idea. I know what's good for me, and I'm going to get it. And I operate under the exact opposite philosophy. I have no idea what's good for me. And I spent most of my first 40 years of my life doing everything I could get it for myself, and every action was wrong. It's the old, I think it's a Buddhist saying uh, about the farmer. The, the farmer uh, has a horse, and the horse runs away one day in, in China or, or old America, and the fa neighbors come and say, oh, your horse has run away. That was so important. Oh, it's such a disaster. And he says, well, we'll wait and see. And the next day, the horse comes back, and this time he's pulling well, he's got a herd. He's got now. All of a sudden, he's got a hundred horses. Yeah. Oh, and the neighbors say, "That's so wonderful. Things are so great, so great, so great." Uh, and he says, "Well, we'll wait and see how this turns out." So the next day, the no, next day, the next week, um, 
His son is breaking one of the horses. He breaks his leg. The neighbors come over. And, oh, this is such a tragedy. It's so horrible. It's so horrible. Your son has broke his leg. You're going to lose your farm. Everything's awful. The next day, the emperor comes around and says, takes all the young men, uh, but he can't take their, and then they're all killed. They're all go to this big battle, and they're all killed. But his son has a broken leg and can't go. So, you know, the moral of the story is you never know what's good for you. Uh, Shakespeare got it right. Uh, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. The idea that you know what's good for you and you're going to make it happen, I think that's a, a tragic mistake. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I approached my mentor once who was a mystic. And I asked him about the law of attraction. And he said, you know, a lot of it, you know, sounds good. And yeah, the universe will take care of you, this, that, and the other. But be cautious because people are translating greediness. Yes. Because they're constantly, at, they're, they're trying to get what they want. And people do that in prayer too, a lot. That's what most prayer is. It's greediness. It's all. It's pure greed. Uh, my my conclusions are uh, that most religious activities are purely selfish and greedy. At, mm-hmm. at their at their ultimately at their core, they're about myself. Right. And really, the whole question uh, to determine in life is self. Self. It all constantly boils down to the ego and to the self. And what is it really up to at this moment? And that is the hardest question to ask honestly and really want to find an answer to and then to find it and then to act on it in in an appropriate way. But that's always the question uh, for every spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, that's always the question. What's going on with what's really genuinely going on with my ego right now mm-hmm. and for Buddhism in particular. And I, this is something I, I admire greatly about uh, Buddhism. It's all about the breaking down of the false self and merging into the we. And oddly enough, it's that merging into the we, I, thou, we, getting that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the 12 steps AA does. Uh, the first word of each step is we. There's no I in the steps anywhere. Mm. Uh, it's always a we. And that's when you come in and you sit down. For me, it was my very first experience as a human being as a we mm. and not an I. Mm. And I had to have more of that. And so I stayed. And it's, uh, it's my pursuit. Mm. Uh, romantic relationships are I-thou. Mm. Uh, and really good ones, uh, it's one plus one equals two. So so you're greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, but you either bond together and merge together the I and the thou, which is what most of them do, or there's just two of you. And that's what really, ultimately, that's what nearly all marriages devolve into. We just cohabit. You want two people cohabiting. Right. A few good ones, they merge and in, in to some degree. I think my ultimate goal is one plus one equals three. Mm. You're you, I'm me, but together we're some new complete entity, this we thing. And these marriages that are are virtually mystical, Mm. it's a we thing that's incomprehensible to the ego. It can't, I I can understand me, I can understand you, I can't understand the we. 
I can't comprehend. My ego can't comprehend that. You have to experience it. And uh, I think the pursuit of all spirituality is one plus one equals three. Well, there, there's also a another teaching in that I think that we need to be comfortable with things not making sense. Yes. So you know the lesson here is acceptance. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. You have to give up the demand that things make sense and that you'd be right. Logic. Light, right. You just there, it has you have to let it go because it doesn't work. It doesn't it doesn't translate. That's right. I mean we need it. We're not going to live our lives illogically, but uh, when the, with the big questions, the the, the questions that the non the non practical the non practical right there's the practical yep. and the non practical the meaning not right. the science science is you know one plus one equals two right but the meaning of what we're studying can be one plus one equals three that's right it's hard to teach butterfly to a caterpillar. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a good saying. I like that a lot. <laughs> it's not going to make sense to everyone. I'm here. Higher power's there. I got to go there. Right. What if it's not one plus one? What if it's one plus one equals three? I'm here. Right. He's there. She, it. Uh, and there's something else. What if it's that something else? Right. Well, so, I, just, I think that's enlightenment. I think we just described enlightenment. <laughs> so Zen, Zen would just say, just be here now. That's all you right. have to do. Right? That's right. why Gautama the Buddha, he didn't talk about God. Not to say he didn't no. believe, but he didn't want to teach his people. He wanted them to drop the concept of God so right. that they could develop themselves internally because people get attached to it and it becomes a greed. Like, yes. money, like money would. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to what we were talking about with praying greedy, always asking, God, please give me this. Please help me with that. Please make sure so-and-so doesn't die. <laughs> right? It's like a dad. It's like if you ask your dad, dad, can I, you know, can I borrow a hundred bucks next week? You know, can I borrow the car next week? Can I borrow another hundred bucks? It's just constant. You're asking, you're asking, you're mm -hmm. asking. The goals in the future, forget about that. Just be here now. Yeah, actually, that's uh, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm a big fan of the steps. The 11th step, uh, which is coming to the end, the last three steps are commonly thought of as the maintenance steps. Mm -hmm. The 11th step says, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand God, mm -hmm. praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the ability to carry it out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the steps built into the steps is you don't pray for yourself. You don't come to God with greed. Ever. That's right. That's right. It's built in that the goal is conscious contact. It's, it's one plus one equals three. It's we. You can't describe conscious contact, mm -hmm. but you know that's the goal of the Buddha. Just a conscious contact, just an, an awareness, a a sixth sense. Yeah. Um, you can't even put in words. Uh, it's not a, a doctrine. It's not a thought. Right. It's not something you do. It's who you are. The big, the big term in Buddhism is emptiness. To empty yourself. Yes. And once you empty yourself, then God or universe, Tao, 
whatever you want to use, then it can, it can enter you once you're empty. Very much. Uh, woo we, the uh, non-acting, mm. non-being. Yeah. yeah I, I, I love all those concepts. They're, they're ones I, um, I hold to. Yeah. Loosely because they're unholdable. <laughs> they're unformable. Now, on your YouTube channel, I have noticed that you're starting to get looser on there. You're starting to drop some stuff, that some wisdom that you've gained over the years. You're starting to talk about this stuff a little more, whereas before it was all van life, van life, van life. I actually have a plan, um, that, and I've had for a long time, and I've taken a few awkward steps to start a vlog. Uh, it'll just be Bob Wells' vlog. And that's all it will be. Uh, it will be uh, philosophical, uh, Stoics. It'll be uh, spiritual, Buddha, Tao, um, all these things we've discussed. It will be all these things we've discussed. Right. Um, Are you prepared for a little bit of pushback on that and or some of your followers leaving? Because Christians can be great people, right? They're great, great, but, but uh, sometimes... <laughs> sometimes there's an arrogance of my God is the only way and this is the only way. And if you don't do it, you're going to hell. Are you ready for that pushback? Oh yeah. You I have I've, a big, you have a big following. I do. And I've always, I've always gotten that audience, that uh, pushback uh, every so often, like you said, even now, every so often my, my religious viewpoints come out. And yeah, I've had Christians write me and tell me my father is the devil and, and uh, I'm going to hell and tell me all about Jesus. Um, yeah, I'm well aware that would be part of it. That's why I would do it as a separate blog. Mm. I'm going to say right in it, you know, these are my personal opinions. If you can't stand to be around someone who has a different opinion, please don't watch. Turn me off now. Don't watch this. Why make yourself angry? Right. I'm, what I'm going to say is make a great majority of people unhappy i mean if you if you're an atheist you're going to be mad um if you're a christian you're going to be mad uh, right why why put yourself through that right right but that, it will happen yes i know it it's it a lot just... of people hate me now i mean there's uh, the world is the youtube is full of uh people who are busily doing everything they can to tell me how wrong i am about everything and what a bad guy i am yeah, well, they they could also look at it as you're you know you're you're teaching people to sell their house and pack up their stuff and yeah. live you know move into a van, <laughs> right? Which is you know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm actually uh, very very much anti-establishment. Sure, you don't want to be held down by the man, if you will, the the system. Yes, you have found a freedom inside uh, inside of society. It's a topic on this podcast that happens a lot. It's still being in the society, but not being of society. Yes. I think that really, uh, that's kind of summarizes it. And now you're sacrificing some of your freedom to teach others how to be in this society, but not of this society. So they can gain their freedom. Yes. Another big, topic that comes up on this podcast often is books i'm a big reader sounds like you're a reader as well uh, i have an episode coming up where i prescribe the my top five books for anyone that wants to go on the spiritual path and kind of fast track it you know 
but I, I got to ask you, have you read any good books lately, Bob? I just recently read a book um, that just was just so powerful for me. It was called Rich Christians in an Age of um, in an Age of Poverty. Mm. Boy, it was powerful. He just went through what the Bible has to say, beginning to end, and and he's he's a, he's a Christian and he's pro church and he he uh, is as gentle as he possibly can be. Um, but there's just if if you read the Bible honestly. It's a. I would recommend everyone read it. Every Christian must should be required to read it, and and everyone should read it. It's what the Bible has to say about taking care of the poor and taking care of each other is just endless, beginning to end. Okay. I, are you? You must be familiar with uh, the year of jubilee. Every fifty years, mm-hmm. uh, this never happened. The Jews never once kept this when they went into Palestine, as we far as we know, it never once happened. But but the way they got set it up is. They distributed the land as fairly as they could to every person who came out of Egypt and into Palestine. And uh, they could they owned the land. They could do anything with it. They could trade it. They could sell it. They could lose it. Uh, they could gamble it away. I mean, they could do anything they wanted. It was theirs. But every 50 years, it returned to the original owner. Mm. Um, so if I, leased it after, if I leased it after 40 years, I knew this was a 10-year lease. If I leased it on the 49th year, I was only going to get that land for one year, and then it was going back to that person. The point was, you could never accumulate wealth because every 50 years, the wealth was lost and returned to the original owner. Money could not, could not in the Judaic system end up all in the hands of a few. Hmm. If you did that every 50 years, the land returned to the original owners and everyone had an equal share and their, and their children, uh, cause they'd want money with them would be got dead by then accumulating wealth, is anti-biblical so i'll stop there <laughs> well you a know, little, little sound a little trip off the side yeah well the, the bible is it's like a great novel and and there's you know secrets to it there's decoding that needs to happen yes. to, to truly understand it uh I, I like to study kabbalah sometimes in the zohar you know the hasids the hasidic jews it's interesting how they break down the stories and the stories in the Bible are, you know, they're breaking it down metaphorically and, and, and how there's, you know, there's meanings underneath where some people just take it all literal, you know? Well, that is really the question. What do you take literal and what do you take figurative? Right. Um, clearly said, if your eye of envy, pluck it out. And if your hand of envy, cut it off. Right. I don't see that happening very often because everyone thinks that to be uh, figurative. But mm-hmm. when he said we b- talked about a lake of fire, that had to be literal. There mm-hmm. was a literal lake of fire. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they got them back. <laughs> well, it's interesting that people take it so literal. I had someone just the other day tell me that she thought the end of the world is coming because of Revelations. She's like, have you read Le- Revelations? This is happening and that is happening. and Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, there's also a dragon in Revelations. <laughs> You know, it says an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept the third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman uh, who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born, etc., etc., etc. So, you know, there's meaning behind that dragon. It's not a literal big red dragon. It's so metaphorical. You have to, there's layers to it. And a lot of it is astrological too. 
very much so. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So we don't know how much is true and whatnot, but there are real teachings in there. That's for sure. Stuff to live your life by. Absolutely. Speaking of that, as we, we wrap this up, what, what's your plan for the next 10 to 15 years? Again, you're coming up on 65. You don't want a house. You don't want an apartment. You're happy in the van. You're happy being a nomad. You're satisfied. That's a big word. Satisfied. Content. Content with one plus one equals three. But, you know, physics are physics and reality is reality and you're only going to get older. Do you have any sort of plan or is it just day by day? I do have a plan. My my work is uh, everything to me and I do consider it work. Uh, I have, I one of my favorite uh, quotes out of the AA literature is says that um, every day is the day we have to carry a vision of God's will into all of our activities, mm. saying to ourselves many times throughout the day, not my will, but thy will be done. Mm. And that is a, that is what I live my life by that. I carry, I don't carry rules. I don't carry, uh, I carry a vision of God's will for me. Right. And uh, it's not like anyone else's vision. It, it could not be like anyone else's vision. It's all individual. And God's, I think God's vision for me is the work I'm doing. And I want to, uh, and I don't know how it's going to ebb and flow, but I'm getting older and it's critically important that it outlast me. And so um, that's what I see as my vision for the moment is making sure that what I'm doing outlasts me. And so I started a nonprofit. Homes on Wheels Alliance, um, and it's set up under all the rules of a 501c3. We are a 501c3. Yep. There's a board of directors. They make all the decisions. Um, I'm kind of the visionary, but that's all. Right. And I'm a board member. I get one vote. Um, they're completely independent. So I've created this thing, which will outlast me, my work. Um, my, I want my YouTube channel to outlast me. I want to find someone who I can bring on as a partner and uh, that they will when I will slowly do less, I'm going to get older. I'm going to get run out of strength and energy and I'm going to slow down and I'm going to die. I am going to die dying right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I want that to go on without me. I don't want that just to die. I don't want my work to be for nothing. So I'm looking, I always have it in mind to find the person that the vision wants to take over for me. So that's my immediate goal. And then to do less and less and uh, retire and slow down and, and do less and less. Never stopped, uh, but do less and less. That's kind of my vision for the moment. Right. It, as long as we got internet, Bob, <laughs> you're going yeah. to last. So people are going to be helped and they're going to say, who's this, who's this older guy with this, the Santa Claus beard and he's <laughs> talking about pooping in his van? Who is this guy? And people are going to discover you 20 years from now. I, I hope so. That's my goal. And, uh, and, but for it not to be ancient history, but to be alive and well. And so that really is my goal. Yeah. And uh, van, van life is a great way to gain freedom and slowly, but surely it's happening. Uh, something we have not talked about along those lines is, uh, I'm, I am, I am devoted to science. Uh, everything I do, if I can't find some Science must not dis. I just read a book by the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama has a book out about um, how, if in any way, shape, or form, science disproves Buddhism, 
you immediately drop that part of Buddhism. Mm. Uh, the Dalai Lama is a man of science and yes. he talks about, he, uh, he's gone all over the world and talked to the greatest scientific thinkers. And, mm. uh, and it all, to my mind, it all aligns and is flowing together in ways we could never have imagined. Mm. Uh, uh, so, and I won't go into the details. But, uh, so I'm a hundred percent believer in science and science has made it extraordinarily clear it's an absolute scientific certainty, as much as anything can be, that uh, there is a climate catastrophe coming mm. quicker than we will ever have known. Mm. And the desert southwest is going to become uninhabitable. It's, you just aren't going to be able to live here. There's not going to be any water, for one thing. Uh, we depend too much on the Colorado River, and that's just not going to work anymore. Mm. Uh, it's going to be too hot. There's not going to be any water. It's going to be uninhabitable. Uh, South Florida is going to become uninhabitable. Uh, sea, sea level rise, but and some of it will be underwater, but the majority of it will become uninhabitable because it's a sandstone sandbar. And the seawater is going to infiltrate into the freshwater and there won't be anything to drink. Right. Uh, the coasts are essentially going to become uninhabitable. We are going to become a nation of nomads, uh, probably not in my lifetime, but within the next 50 years, mm. the next 100 years, it's an absolute. And so I, part of my work is to prepare for that. Mm. At the moment, it's calling out those who need it, not because of climate catastrophe. Biodiversity disaster is, is coming upon us in ways we can't even imagine. Mm. Uh, I could go on and on about the science of, of biodiversity disaster. It's coming. Um, and we're not going to do it. We could. The argument is, can't we do anything about it? I, the, the optimists say yes. The realistics, the realists say no. But the fact is, we won't do anything about it until it's too late. Then we'll start trying, and then it'll be too late. It's coming. Uh, you're all. We're all going to be nomads. We're going to be. We're going to become nomads. We're going to become climate refugees. And so, a nomadic way of life is going to become the norm, like it was for the first two million years of human and pre-human history. Do you think that van life will be a great way to do that nomad life or will we run out of fuel and it, it will be irrelevant? We're all going to be on the move. We're going to leave all these regions of the country that are uninhabitable. We're all going to be moving north uh, where the climate will be better, more in, uh, won't require. We're going to stop using fossil fuels. We're just going to stop. Uh, what few we have to burn some, but for some things, uh, plastics and so on. But uh, who knows? I have no idea what the future is going to shake out like. Someone, people a lot smarter than me, that are going to figure that out. Mm. But it's going to be nothing like it is now. Capitalism will become uh, reviled for what it is—a uh, horror to to the earth and to humanity. Um, socialism and communism aren't options; they're just failures. I don't, I don't know what the future will be. Um, but it won't, it will be very different than it is today. Maybe there won't be government. Uh, that's the way it, that's the way it always worked in the past. The first two million years worked really, really well. Um, and it was always at the extreme local level and, and very, um, egalitarian. Mm -hmm. There were no votes. Uh, one guy was just the wisest and then he, everyone kept asking him what he thought and then they started doing it. But that one who was the wisest or that group who were the wisest, this is the way all primitive peoples lived. Uh, 
the elders were always the wisest. They were always listened to, uh, revered. Uh, there are there are lots of um, uh, Neanderthal graves with very old men, very very sick men. People would there's a they found a Neanderthal grave. His jaw was gone. He couldn't eat. His mm. people, the Neanderthals, had chewed his food. He was old. It had been healed for years, decades, and his tribe healed his chewed his food and gave it to him. That's mm. how he lived. Uh, that's the way humans have always lived, and we're going to do that again, whatever form it takes. So currently, getting in a van and living a nomadic life could psychologically prepare us for this if we're younger and we're going to overlap into this. Absolutely. And not very far away. Uh, I mean, um, we're just at the beginning now with all the natural disasters and, and the real hardcore changes are, are to come. Mm. And what the natural disasters we're facing now uh, we will look back in 10, 20, 30 years and think, boy, those were the good old days. Mm. And uh, it's just one after another, and it's going to become worse. Mm. That's what the science says. It's not my idea. I'm not right. bringing it up. That's right. what the science says. Right. So I, I got to get, get in my van, Bob. <laughs> I got to make this happen. <laughs> I think so. Uh, and I don't talk about this much. I, you should do it because you'll be happier. Right. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, you will be healthier. Yeah, my, my thought personally is to do part-time first mm -hmm. and to, to be able to go to ashrams and monasteries and, but not be stuck there. Yes. So I can go there for a month and then I can come back to regular city life and I can go back and forth. And also, also Bob, too, I, I, for me anyway, the social aspect. Yes. So if I want to visit a friend in New York, I'm in Hartford, Connecticut. If I want to go two and a half hours to New York to visit a friend, right now I got to think too much. Well, I got to get yeah. a hotel. I got to If I have a vehicle, basically a hotel on wheels, an office on wheels, yeah, that makes being social a lot easier to travel. It does. Someone. And what most of us find is that stress falls away, and the um, and what makes American life so miserable is the constant replaying of the tapes in our head, the, mm. the last argument with the boss, the last fight with the wife, the, the, the teachers at school who are struggling with my children. Those tapes play in our head nonstop. And once you, once you kind of break away from that, those tapes can stop playing and you can start listening to your heart and to the real, true you. And, um, and then... When I find you and I come together, then if your head, the tapes aren't playing in your head and the tapes aren't playing in my head, we can actually hear each other. Mm -hmm. I can actually hear what you're saying and feel what I'm seeing on your face and in your heart. Mm -hmm. And then I, you and I can bond in ways that you will never have bonded with another human being before mm -hmm. because the tapes keep playing. Right. Very well said. If somebody's already familiar with you and they listen to this, are they are they ready for this, Bob? I don't <laughs> well, it comes out a little bit here and there. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, <laughs> they should. Again, sit I'm, down. I'm going to start doing this on a channel, and so it's my goal to make get this out there. I think sure. these things are as important as how to how to poop in a bucket, and I want sure. to get them. Sure, sure thing. Death is coming, and uh, oh yeah, for all it's of us. here any day, and so today's the day to get ready.
Today's the day to get ready. I love it. Okay, Bob, where can they find you on social media so they can come see your work and come say hello? Oh, <laughs> this is actually where KC should answer. Uh, I'm uh, Cheap RV Living on YouTube. I'm Cheap RV Living on uh, Facebook and I think Instagram and my website, CheapRVLiving.com. Um, yeah, I'm, that's Cheap RV Living and you'll, you'll find me. And your website is full of tons of information. It is. Everything I know is on my website. Well, it's been just a true pleasure to talk with you and get to know you better. On the next Peace Pod, I have Santos Bonacci coming on. And, of course, he's the great mystery school teacher, a syncretist, and he's going to break down a lot of secrets in the world, things you never knew. So we can gain even more inner peace and liberation. So we're going from Bob Wells to Santos Bonacci. This is just unbelievable, heavy, and liberating stuff. And I'm so grateful to be in this position to talk to these beautiful people. If you're looking for my work, my seminars, my webinars, my books, more podcast episodes, go to my hub, which is drreese.com. That's Dr. Spelt Out, and I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time. May peace be with you.